Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live yet again. It is Sunday night, June 28th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We have got... As Patrice asked me in the chat 15 minutes ago, yes, indeed, a jam-packed show yet again tonight. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, thank you. 88.3% of our viewership currently to this show on the YouTube channel is from unsubscribed viewers. I figure if you're already here, you might as well subscribe. It's still free, always will be free. And if you're listening on the podcast, subscribe there too. Give us a five-star review. Those are worth their weight in gold to us. Thank you so much for that. We've got a whole lot to get to tonight. We're going... Not necessarily in a preview magazine fashion, but we're going to do some stuff that preview magazines do. We're going to talk about some conference races, some at the top, some at the mid-tier across the Power Five that I've got my eye on. I'm going to tell you exactly why I have my eye on them. We're going to span the entire country regarding that. We're also going to span pretty much the entire country involving the hot seat talk that I don't think is going to be nearly as relevant this year. However, there is still a varying degree of pressure and need to win now sort of sentiment around certain head coaches. And you've got unique situations. I think you've got a misunderstood situation at Michigan. I think you've got an impossible to nail down situation at UCLA. You've got a pretty obvious situation, I think, right now at USC, maybe even on the other USC, on the other side of the country in South Carolina. So we'll discuss all that. I don't think I've ever walked onto the set. For those listening on the podcast, I'm thumping a book. Uh, this is not a Bible I'm thumping. This is The Tailgater's Guide to SEC Football, Volume 5 by Chris Warner. One of the big perks of working at 24-7 and being one of only two people allowed in the building right now is I get early dibs on all the free stuff that people send us. And Chris Warner sent us this book. I'm not going to read you anything about tailgates, but later on, I'm going to just blow your mind. Maybe like two or three of you know about the history of college football in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The rest of you, along with myself, until I opened up this book, didn't know. Just mind the emoji. Mind will be blown. We're going to do that. We're going to talk about Dallas Turner. There is a big-time commitment coming up again out of South Florida. And yet again, the Florida Gators are on the periphery, but it's really down to Georgia and Alabama. We'll discuss that. And also, I've got a Q&A towards the very end of the show that involves Jimbo Fisher. And I think my perception may be a little bit different on Jimbo than a lot of yours. A lot of you are doubting Jimbo Fisher. A lot of you are doubting that he can ever relive up to his status that he had maybe when he entered the SEC as being on that level right below Nick Saban. And now it looks like Saban and Kirby Smart and Ed Orgeron and where are we going to find room to kind of pencil Jimbo Fisher's name in. So we'll get to all that tonight. We've got a lot to get to. Happy you're with us. Let's dive in, shall we? You email me all the time and in not so many words, or maybe more words than I'm going to use here. You ask about conference races, and a lot of people want to know about Ohio State-Penn State. A lot of people want to know about Georgia versus Alabama. 
And I'm not gonna hit on either one of those because I think those are obvious. I'm gonna hit on each of those schools, but maybe in a different fashion here. But I wanted to go coast to coast, and I wanna look at some of these conference races tonight to start the show. And I wanna talk about the different layers, which is what's always so beautiful about college football is the various layers and all these quote-unquote storylines that exist just below the surface that you don't necessarily see if you're just a casual viewer of the game. I'm gonna start with Georgia versus Florida. Now this one's an obvious one, it's a national rivalry, everyone knows about it, but there's been this kind of undercurrent that's been simmering, it's there every year, these two hate each other, but there's specific undercurrent I'm talking about has been simmering since game week of last year. To remind you, last year they both have buys before they play each other. Georgia had just lost to South Carolina in a plus four turnover debacle on a Saturday afternoon in Athens. That South Carolina team goes on even beating Georgia to miss a bowl game. That's how bad that Saturday was. And there was overwhelming sentiment, not too unlike most preview magazines out there right now, there was overwhelming sentiment that that was gonna be Florida's year, 2019, just this past season. That was gonna be Florida's Saturday. I was on the field for that game. It was third down conversion after third down conversion after third down conversion for Georgia. They end up winning a one possession game. That game's always tight. I think the line ended up being Georgia minus six and a half, and I think Georgia won by seven. So a lot of money lit on fire and a lot of kids eating ramen noodles the following couple of weeks down near Gainesville after that. And ever since then, obviously the focus shifts towards 2020. And I want you to think about this from a couple of points of view. From Georgia's point of view, you've got varying perspectives in that fan base. You've got the perspective of, we love where recruiting is now, but we haven't gotten over that hump. We had not won a national championship. We, we've run into Alabama a couple of times and we want to get the job done. But the other side of that coin is we're owning Florida in recent history. We're out recruiting them. We are the premier program in the SEC East. And so until that changes, I mean, it's really hard to be mad if the only place you're coming up short in is the very, very tippy top of the totem pole, haven't quite won a national championship yet. But if they lose to Florida, I think you'll be surprised nationally, but I don't think we'll be surprised regionally to start to hear a lot more grumbles out of the Georgia fan base about Kirby Smart. Not saying hot seat, that's not what I'm talking about, but a lot more people that appreciate what he's done and he's changed the culture there and he's overturned things, but yet if we haven't gotten this done and now you're not even getting this done for us anymore, um, well, where exactly do we stand? Now, from Florida's point of view, they're willing to forget last season because everything's sort of been building. This is Mullen's third year, been building towards 2020 and building towards what you thought was going to be easily the best quarterback head coach situation that you had had in a while. The difference is you thought it was going to be Franks and Mullen, and now it is actually Kyle Trask and Dan Mullen, which in retrospect, you probably prefer over the former combo. Everything's been building towards this, and I maintain, even though I've had some pushback on this, I maintain my stance that if Florida doesn't get it done this year, a lot of the sentiment will go from unbridled enthusiasm for Florida fans to, if we couldn't get it done this year, with the schedule tilted our way, quarterback tilted our way, coaching staff turnover tilted our way, if we couldn't get it done this year, when will we get it done? That's why Georgia Florida's on the list. Make no mistake about it, it is all about Alabama LSU over in the West. Alabama LSU has been my favorite game in college football for over a decade now, perennially. Even when Alabama was running off seven or eight whatever wins in a row, I never viewed them as dominating the series. I viewed them as dominating 
I guess this sounds counterintuitive, in the win-loss column, which is all that matters. What I'm saying is the style of the games were not such that they were winning 63 to 20 blowouts. Outside of a couple of times, those were nail biters. Those were nip and tuck. I mean, they trailed a couple of times down in Baton Rouge until the final minute. So they were really good games. And now LSU finally clipped them. And LSU got them last year. And you remember the story with LSU. So there are two perspectives on this one. We're talking perspectives a lot here. For Alabama folks, if you talk to them, you're either going to hear, well, you're probably going to hear from a vast majority of Bama fans, last year was a one-time deal. And yet LSU had a historic season tip our cap to them. But remember now, even in their historic season, it took us being injured defensively and it took a superstar transcendent Heisman Trophy winning quarterback and all the stars aligning for you to even come in here and beat us by five. Of course, on the other side, LSU would say, yeah, but you needed a late touchdown to pull to within one score. Like that would be the back and forth there. But here's the whole thing. The whole thing is you can either view last year as a one-time deal and Alabama restores order this year, or you could look at it 2019 being the it I'm referring to, and say, no, man, that was a changing of the guard. A lot of stuff occurred last year, and you can't hit the fast-forward button and know how it's going to play out, but you'll see this year, if Alabama goes down there in Baton Rouge and they lose, all of a sudden you got back-to-back losses. Nick Saban to Ed Orgeron, back-to-back losses, and you're taking a new quarterback down there. Don't care who it is this year. You're taking a new quarterback down to LSU. I can't tell you if they'll have 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, or even one People in the stands, persons in the stands. But Bryce Young, we're looking at film of him right now. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's Mac Jones. I mean, you know, I I feel as strongly about Alabama as anyone this year, but let's not pretend like there aren't questions. There are questions with everyone. Now let's go all the way out to the West Coast. I don't think, I think it's pretty much a no-brainer where we go here too. Oregon USC, I'm so excited about this this year. I want you to think about this. Think about it from Oregon's perspective. You would think after a team loses a first-round caliber quarterback, that it's an automatic step back. And that is unequivocally not the case. At least it's not the way they feel at Oregon. Talking to some folks at Oregon, I mean, we've talked to Mario Cristobal a couple of times, but talking to people at Oregon, him included, I guarantee you, I can wholeheartedly guarantee you, they feel like they've got their best team yet under that coaching staff. And speaking of the coaching staff, they've upgraded the coaching staff. Joe Moorhead was, you know, ill-equipped to be the head coach at Mississippi State. He's perfectly equipped to be the offensive coordinator at Oregon. That was a huge pickup. Again, talking to Cristobal a couple of weeks ago, that's one of those blessings that just falls in your lap and you look around and it's like someone's playing a prank on you. It's kind of like the insurance commercial where the guy's got the dollar bill and it's, it's you gotta be quicker. Nope. It wasn't that. There were no strings attached to Joe Moorhead. He just kind of fell in their lap. And so Oregon believes, and I believe along with them, they are positioned to where they could potentially put a stranglehold on the Pac-12, not just USC, the Pac-12, if they are to emerge like I think they're capable of emerging this year. But all the while, I mean, think about that. You lose a first-round talent at quarterback, and yet you think the net is still an upgrade for your team. USC all the way down the coast is in wounded animal mode. That's the best way to describe them as a program. A majority of their fan base, a majority of the nation thought that Clay Helton would be out after last year. You get the new AD in there late in the season. The president doesn't really want to make a move. And for whatever litany of reasons, Clay Helton is still there. I'm not here to call for a guy's job. I don't think I've ever done that. I never will do that. I just observe and kind of try and read the tea leaves. And the tea leaves are, I was over 
on the USC football message board the other day, um, Ryan Abraham and the guys do a great job of running that site for us at 24-7 Sports, and I've never seen a consensus like this. I went on there before our Thursday show because we talked about Clay Helton and we talked about Southern Cal, and I went on there, and I just asked, hey, what's the sentiment? And specifically, I said, if you, if you win the Pac-12, if you go 10-2 and two or better, you win the Pac-12, that's great. But if I gave you two scenarios and it's eight and four or four and eight, what would you rather have? And a lot of them, a vast majority, not only said we'd rather have four and eight if that's what it takes to get this coaching staff out of here, but there was a, I think it was over 90% consensus that Clay Helton is on borrowed time, lame duck status as a head coach. They're still recruiting very well right now, which is shockingly refreshing given the disaster that was last year's class. They're in the top 10 in the 24-7 sports team rankings right now, so it hasn't torpedoed recruiting yet. But think about Southern Cal's schedule before they go to Oregon, and they do have to go to Eugene for that game. Before they go there, they will have already played Bama in week one, neutral site game. They will have played Arizona State, and they will have played at Utah. There's no doubt in my mind USC season, and perhaps more than that, is on the line by the time they play Oregon. Oregon, though, knows all they know. That's their chance. That's a Super Bowl for them because it is their chance to knock out to them the biggest threat standing between them and total domination for an extended period of time as being the alpha program on the West Coast. How about we go to Penn State, but we're not going Penn State, Ohio State. We're going Penn State, Michigan jockeying for position right now. Back in the day, Colin, I don't know if they still do this, but back in the day, some of the best matches you would ever see in pro wrestling were not for the heavyweight championship. They were for the number one contender for the heavyweight championship. And that was basically to see who was going to wrestle at the upcoming pay-per-view for the world title. And those were really good matches. Well, I say that because that is essentially what Penn State Michigan is this year. And it's felt like that recently. It is Who's going to be the number one contender in this conference, in this case the Big Ten, for a shot at that crown, for a shot at Ohio State? Week five is when they play each other this year. That is Penn State at Michigan. Where are those offenses when that game happens? We've talked about both of these offensive coordinators. Kirk Soraka is coming in from Minnesota. This is his first season as offensive coordinator at Penn State. You know the drill. They lost spring. We'll see how it looks. Could it be bumpy to start out? You do have experience returning at quarterback. I like their offensive line situation, looking for playmakers out wide. That's where they have to develop. Whereas Josh Gaddis enters year two as offensive coordinator at Michigan. Now there, you have some quarterback uncertainty. You get the feeling that maybe the national perception on who the starter may be there could differ the closer you get to the actual fans who follow the program day to day. Offensive line is a far bigger mystery for them. So whatever the case may be, you got questions everywhere. By week five, that's when they play. What do those respective offenses look like? Now for Michigan, before they play that game, they go to Washington in week one, and then they will have played Wisconsin, I believe the week before they play Penn State. Penn State has not played a conference game to this point in week five where they'll be even close to an underdog. They will have played at Virginia Tech in their out-of-conference, and that'll be the biggest test that they've had. That'll be a road test for them before that. That one is going to be really, really fun to watch. How about Texas-Oklahoma State? Didn't go Texas-OU. I think that was pretty obvious. Texas-Oklahoma State. This is the last game in the regular season for each team. 
there could be a New Year's Six spot on the line here, and that's in that kind of scenario where, let's say Oklahoma wins the conference again, and let's say they're a playoff team. Well, then obviously that bumps everyone up the ladder, the bowl pecking order, and you could have a New Year's Six spot on the line like Texas benefited from a couple of years ago when they went to the Sugar Bowl. We're going to talk about that Sugar Bowl and how it relates to Tom Herman a little bit later in the show. But there's such a wide range of possibilities here. You could really, probably more likely than not, have a spot in the Big 12 championship game on the line. You could have these two teams, this is not out of the realm of possibility, it's unlikely, but not out of the realm of possibility, for these two teams to be playing knowing they're going to play again the next week. That could happen. These are two of the three favorites in the Big 12 this year. I don't think we should necessarily sleep on Iowa State, but I mean, it would be dishonest to call this a matchup of anything other than two of the three top teams in the Big 12 this year, but this could be a rematch scheduled a week later. This could be one team with a Big 12 title slot on the line. It could be that they are playing to line up opposite Oklahoma a week later in the Big 12 title game, or it could be irrelevant. Both programs could have massively underperformed this year. So such a wide range is the reason I put that there. Um, And also, for different reasons, you'll have a circle around each head coach. And we're going to talk about Tom Herman again later in the program. I mean, if, if Texas is limping towards the finish line at that point, we've seen the headlines before. Hey, there are whispers out of fill in the blank. In this case, it would be Austin. So and so needs a really strong performance this weekend. What does that mean? Well, they're always pretty vague so as to not nail their opinion to the wall. And translation, they don't want to be able to be called onto the carpet if they were wrong, but that kind of stuff could happen. And the last one before we move on, come back to the SEC and go in the West, is Auburn-Texas A&M. This whole SEC West dynamic, this is a conference, and this is a division in a conference where there are not enough seats at the table. You see, everyone in the SEC West views themselves, at least at the top, Alabama, LSU, Auburn, A&M. Those programs pay their coaching staffs and they have investment on par with playoff contender status. They all fancy themselves playoff contenders. They all fancy themselves as having every resource necessary to compete annually for the SEC championship. But they can't because there are four of them and it's one division. So this is always fun. Jimbo Fisher has not beaten Auburn yet. This will be his third try. Uh, The box score two years ago, if you want to have some fun after the show, go cover up the final score with your right hand and with your left hand, just hold up the box score of Auburn and A&M two years ago and ask yourself, how in the world did the home team win that game? I digress. Now A&M returns to Auburn again this year. This will be probably the first game they're not favored in. I think it's middle of the season, and a lot of A&M fans are looking at it. And and the simple takeaway is, hey, if we can go into Auburn and win, then it's the last two games of the year that decide our fate at Alabama and home versus LSU. There just aren't enough seats at the table. All of these little intra-matchups, little intra-division matchups, Auburn versus LSU is fascinating. A&M LSU is fascinating. You can't go wrong here, but I went Auburn versus A&M. So those are just some, not all, but some of the best conference races uh, that we're keeping an eye on here for this upcoming season. Now, another thing that you guys have asked a whole lot about, and I've sort of tabled it, I think I've spoken on a few of these to some degree on the Late Kick Extra podcast, which we release every Wednesday. It's gotten really good traffic. But I haven't really done a whole segment on hot seat talk. I normally don't focus on this a lot. 
And I certainly don't ever call for someone to be fired. I just, I just don't like doing it. A lot of other people do. So I let them do it. And we it's going to be what it is anyway. So we mainly react in this arena. We don't really pontificate a whole lot. But I will just give you some thoughts on one, two, three, four, on five coaches here right quick that I think probably most preseason publications are going to put on some form of quote-unquote hot seat. Now, what I like to do is I just like to tell you how secure I think they are in their standing, one to ten, ten being you're in huge trouble and one being you just got here five minutes ago or you just won a national championship. So I wanted to start with Tom Herman, as I mentioned a few minutes ago in another segment. I'd put him in a seven right now, maybe even below a seven. I don't view this guy as being on a hot seat. I don't view this guy's job as being in jeopardy this year. I think there's a lot of pressure on him, as there always is any time of year. It's almost a waste of time to even say that. But there is probably a heightened, a slightly heightened sense of pressure on Tom Herman. But I'll tell you what greatly alleviated my concern about whether this could be a make-or-break year for him is when the staff at Horns 24-7, a few weeks back, maybe like a month ago, they had Chris Del Conte, the athletic director at Texas, they had him in a live fan Q&A. I, to be honest with you, had not listened to Crystal Conte talk a whole lot about this matter before then. And some athletic directors are very on the periphery. They don't know the inner workings day-to-day of the football program. Del Conte's not one of those guys. Chris Del Conte is razor sharp focused in on everything Texas football. That guy knew offensive line draft stats from Texas versus TCU and other programs for the last decade. Like he was dialed in. Here's what made me think Tom Herman's fine. Chris Del Conte started talking about that Sugar Bowl a couple of years ago. The way that a lot of fans I've heard talk about that Sugar Bowl frame it as is, all right, year two, we went to the Sugar Bowl, we beat Georgia. The natural next step is college football playoff. And then when they came back to earth, perceptionally, this season, and it looked like they backtracked and they slid backwards and they fell down the ladder a couple of rungs. Everyone started talking about how the program had peaked and now we regressed and if he doesn't get it done this year, yada, yada, yada. Well, Chris Del Conte had the proper, to me, view on that whole matter. He said, there is a process to building a program. And in a lot of ways, we had to rewire this program when Tom Herman got here. And in year one, there was progress. And in year two, he didn't say it just like this, but here's how he framed it. You've heard me say before, I believe in describing programs as being a caliber, a win caliber. Sometimes you're an eight-win caliber program that wins 10 games just because crazy things happen and a lot of other teams fall or maybe you play teams when they're banged up or just you get really lucky in the turnover battle. And for whatever reason, you put up a 10 or 11 win season and you're really only an eight or nine win caliber team. That's kind of what Texas did in that Sugar Bowl year. That's how Chris Del Conte looked at it. And so what he said in that interview that made me notice is he said, it probably gave people a false impression of how far along we were. We were not that far along to the degree that it would normally take to make a New Year's Six game. When I heard him say that, A, I knew that meant he got it. And B, I knew that meant there's no pressure relative to hot seat or losing your job on Tom Herman this year. So I'm putting him at a seven. New coordinators, both sides of the ball this year. You didn't have spring. He'll have every excuse if he needs it in his back pocket to buy himself one more year, even if disaster strikes. Now, Clay Helton, can't say that about him. We just touched on him a little while ago. This one's at a 10. I've never seen a more widely held consensus, again, amongst a fan base and amongst a group of supporters of a program 
than I have with Southern Cal. USC folks towards Clay Helton, there is such a widely held consensus that not only is this his last year, but last year should have been his final season, that it feels, in fact, this feels more unanimous than what LSU was when they held on to Miles one year too long. You remember how that worked out with Les Miles. They retained him at the very last moment, and then he only holds on a few weeks into the following season, and they ax him. Listen, LSU fans were still far more split on Miles at that point than Southern Cal fans are right now. There's a much more widely held consensus about what the fate of Clay Helton should be. Now, we'll see what impact that has on the athletic director there and the president and the decision they make, but I don't know how you go any lower than a 10 on the job security rating right now, 10 being a negative in this connotation on Clay Helton. Now, how about Will Muschamp? This is South Carolina, and this is Will Muschamp, and this is a lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts for Will Muschamp right now. He needs, to me, two big things to click for him, and he's gonna have to hit the ground running with both of them because you have no time to break anything in. He needs Mike Bobo to be a home run or a grand slam hire as his offensive coordinator. Now, for the record, you talk to people in the South. I talked to one person really dialed into that situation a couple of weeks ago, and everybody inside football in the SEC thinks Will Muschamp made one of the best offseason hires of any coaching staff. In, in getting Mike Bobo as his offensive coordinator, Bobo was in demand. He could have a number of high-profile jobs and he went to South Carolina. He chose to go to South Carolina. They got Ryan Helensky back. That is Will Muschamp's hand-picked quarterback. They got him back again this year. So you hope that they're able to click offensively early on. There's been no consistency. There's been no identity. They haven't even had healthy players on the field to try and forge an identity. And it's been very up and down, a mixed bag to say the least. And that's my second thing that has to click for them. They also made probably a far less noteworthy hire in terms of national headlines, but a hire that I thought was pivotal for them. They went into Oxford, they went over to Ole Miss, and they got Paul Jackson as their new strength and conditioning guy. He had been in Oxford for quite a while, if I remember correctly. And so, listen, I would be lying to you if I said I knew definitively this guy was the right man for the job. He better be the right man for the job. South Carolina's biggest problem hasn't been play calling, it hasn't been design, it hasn't been anything like that. They haven't had players on the field. They haven't had enough players on the field. And it's not because they haven't recruited them. They've recruited well enough. They can't keep guys healthy. So they got to have guys healthy. That, those are the two things that have to click for him to have a shot this year. Now, having said all this about every one of these guys, and Will Muschamp's no different, you got to take into context Football revenues are going to be significantly down this year. If we have a season, it'll look way different. So football revenues are going to be down. So any name, including Will Muschamp, that I reference here, you got to take that into context. It could very well be that making a move on these guys is off limits. Internally, athletic directors just decide we're going to have to hold our nose no matter what happens this year. We are not making a move. That would be a disaster in PR and perception, and financially, we can't afford it anyway, so that could be the case. Having said that, right now, I'd put Muschamp at about an eight and a half, because if this was a normal season, it, it was a general consensus from people around that program, you had your make or break year. Last year, they thought it was, and I never thought it was. This year would be that under normal circumstances. Here's the weird one. The weird one, let's go out to UCLA. Chip Kelly is at UCLA. He is three years into a five-year deal. I want to say he's got like a $9 million buyout. 
it, it just is. It's frozen. It doesn't really uh, de-escalate as the years go on. I don't think, if I remember his, uh, his contract correctly. He is 7 and 17 right now. It is a lifeless program. It is such a weird feel. The reason I say it's a weird feel is because if this were at uh, Tennessee, for example, I would know. If this were at Florida, I would know. If this were at Michigan or Ohio State, I would know definitively this guy's out of here. He probably already would be gone. But he's not. He's at UCLA. And the reason it's weird is because I don't know how angry people are there. I don't know how collective the angst is there. I don't know how much people care about it. I really don't. It's no knock on... Yeah, it is a knock on UCLA, to be honest with you. I don't know how much people care about it. I know how much people care at Southern Cal. I don't know how much people care about Chip Kelly and what he has or hasn't done at UCLA right now. And the other thing is, I wonder if too much apathy has snuck in to where, you know, people, hey, all things considered, I'd love UCLA to be winning, but right now we're not, so just call me when we're winning again. Well, that's not how you apply enough pressure to make a move. And so... I put it a seven on a one to 10 scale right now of a hot seat, job security, whatever, but it's so antithetical, and you know how very rarely I use that word. It's so antithetical to what he had at Oregon. At Oregon, every game was a sellout. They had an environment to sell. They had a unique brand to sell. They had talent. And at UCLA, he has got a shell of the roster he had at Oregon. The atmosphere, not even comparable. The brand, not even comparable. It just feels so dead in the water. It's like if you took a sailboat and you put it out in the middle of the ocean, but then you took the sail away. What's a sailboat without a sail? It's useless. It's just kind of at the mercy of the waves and kind of same way I feel about UCLA right now. And also when Chip Kelly came to Oregon, what he was doing was new. What he was doing I mean, to that moment, no one had really seen that version of offense. He brought a new style of offense. Nothing he's doing is new. Even if he had the talent right now, to be honest with you, I question what the effectiveness would be. And that's what a lot of football people were saying when UCLA made this move. Like, what other tricks does Chip Kelly have in the bag? Everyone respects his acumen. Everyone respects his play calling and play designing ability. And everyone respects that. It's just that they felt like Whereas a decade ago, I mean, he completely dive-bombed the entire sport. They didn't feel like that was going to be the case this time around. So add that to the fact that his roster is inferior to what he had at Oregon, and the situation right now is inferior to what he had at Oregon. I don't know how hot his seat is. Two more years on the deal. We'll see. Now, Jim Harbaugh, I laugh at this. I know it gets you clicks, and I know it gets you magazine purchases. Jim Harbaugh's not on a hot seat. Whoever tells you that's lying. Jim Harbaugh's not on a hot seat. I laugh at the notion Changes have to be given time to take root. I'm not talking about them hiring him. I'm talking about him, Jim Harbaugh, hiring Josh Gaddis. We spoke about this at length last show. If you want to go listen to that, look it up. You can watch the whole show, or you can watch just the Josh Gaddis feature. You got to give it a little bit of time to take root. This dude's done fine there. They've been a good program. They have not been a great program. You don't fire coaches for being good. You just don't. I know in fantasy world and Xbox world, you do. This is the real world. And also this is Michigan where they, for better or for worse, expect a certain amount of decorum, shall I say, in the way they handle these matters. They're not firing him. If he continues to turn in the results that he's turning in right now, they're not firing him. You are holding him to an insanely high standard. And as I've told you, I don't mind that. 
I don't mind it at all because there's maximum fan investment from an emotional standpoint. There's maximum financial investment into him from a contractual standpoint. None of that bothers me. I understand all that. But none of it changes reality. Reality is, Colin's showing you footage from a press conference right now. I was in that room when that happened, although I didn't shoot this footage. That was at the Verbo, that's the day I learned what Verbo was, Citrus Bowl against Alabama. They just wrapped up a season where they played a New Year's Day game against Alabama. You really think those results, if he continues just on that trajectory, are going to get him fired? I don't. I know what the lead caption here is. They're over against Ohio State. They're over as Big Ten champions in his tenure there. I know what that is. I get that headline, but... Bottom line is, you got a historically great program that happens to be your arch rival there. If you fire Harbaugh, you got to have someone better already in your back pocket. If you have that, be my guest. I would put his hot seat at like a four right now. I don't think that there's any kind of danger for him unless there's some kind of scandal that extends well beyond football. Or, and this is not out of the realm of possibility, but this is different, if there's a mutual decision to part ways, if he wants to go to the NFL or do something else, that doesn't belong on this list. Some other names I had in the email inbox that I didn't even give mention to. Gus Malzahn, no hot seat. Uh, Frost at Nebraska, nope. I don't think there's a hot seat there either. Manny Diaz at Miami, I don't even think he's unpacked his bags yet. So no, I don't think he's on a hot seat either. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Now, I'm going to pick this book up, and we're going to transition I tweeted out earlier today that on the show tonight, we were going to span 122 years. I think I may have even shortchanged you a little bit. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of 2020, and I don't think I've ever done anything quite like I'm about to do, mainly because reading you excerpts from a book is boring. However, when I walked in the office the other day at 24-7 right now, I'm allowed in this building, Colin's allowed in this building, that's about it. No one else comes in the building. There would normally be like thousands of people in this entire complex right now, but we're the only two allowed here. So the mail piles up and, you know, we got to change the tablets and the coffee machine to keep it um, fresh and sanitized and stuff. So one of the perks is we get sent a lot of free stuff. Like you can talk about the health benefits of working here all you want to. The best perk of working at 24-7 is we get all the preview magazines for free and we get all these books sent to us by the authors for free. And that's great because... I'm a guy who loves free stuff. I've been known to, this is a true story. When I was at the Sugar Bowl two years ago, I walked out of the Superdome with an entire case of water under my arm, shamelessly. I didn't even apologize for it. I didn't feel bad for it. It was just, I knew they were going to throw it away. 
and it was free stuff they give to the media and it's sitting there and I can't stand to see free food or drink go to waste. Can't stand it. So having said that, you understand my excitement when I see these free magazines and these free books. So this is a book by Chris Warner. He sent it to us along with a nice letter. It is the Tailgater's Guide to SEC Football. This is volume five. Now, of course, as you would expect, there's a litany of information about every SEC program in here, but I haven't even gotten to that. I open it up and he's got a story to open this year's edition about the history of college football. This blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. The extent of my research about college football probably only goes back to about World War II. I don't think I've done a whole lot of reading about college football before World War II. Really, I haven't done a ton of reading about the sport uh, pre-segregation, just because the sport changed entirely. I feel the same way about baseball. Sports just change entirely when you integrate them to the point where it's nice to know the history, but you're not even reading about the same game. So I haven't done a whole lot of reading to be honest with you, about the game before they wore helmets. But it is fascinating, but boy, I didn't know how fascinating it was gonna be. Now, modern day players, if you're in high school right now, if you're a college football player right now, we got a number of you who watch the show. If you talk to old timers, if you talk to guys who played in the 70s, they are gonna call you soft. You talk to guys who went through two-a-days and three-a-days, and in some cases, four-a-days, you gotta whisper about those, no one was supposed to know, they're gonna call you soft. And really what that is, is that's a badge of honor because they went through stuff that you, because legislators have stepped in, don't have to go through. And that's all well and good. And maybe relative to the prior generation or two, maybe it is a more sanitized game now for the better, for the most part. But what if I told you that guys who played in the 70s played a soft brand of football too? Aha, aha, coming to America reference, that's true. It's all relative. It's all relative to what era you're in versus what era we're talking about that is bygone in nature. So I open this book up. I'm just going to read it to you because, again, this is a professional author, so he does a better job than I. We're talking about post-Civil War football here, and we're talking about turn of the century uh, going into the 1900s. Listen to this. Football's brush with death. By the turn of the century, in spite of the game's enormous popularity— Concerns nevertheless had materialized over the future of football in America. Brutality and foul play had so tainted the sport that President Theodore Roosevelt felt it necessary to prompt a serious national discussion about the nature of the game. Roosevelt's remarks were justified. Now I'm going to throw some stats at you. These are true. These are real stats. During the 1905 football season, the game's brutal nature, typified by mass formations such as the flying wedge and gang tackling, resulted in 18 fatalities and 159 serious injuries on college football playing fields. Guys, there weren't that many teams playing. You look all over the place. we got 130 FBS teams these days. They had a fraction of that back then. They had 18 people killed in a season. So what happens there? Well, what happened there? Let me put my napkin bookmark in the book. This has got to be fascinating theater of the imagination if you're listening on the podcast. You ask yourself, how had something not been done before that? We got people dying in mass on the football field. Well, that's a good question. Why hadn't anyone done anything? Someone tried to do something. Someone tried to do something indeed. In fact, 
There was a player, forget the guy's name, there was a player in 1897 for Georgia. This will blow your mind even further. There's a player, Georgia's playing Virginia in Athens in 1897. It's October 30th. And this dude gets knocked out, probably either head trauma or a serious concussion. Nevertheless, they take him over to the sideline, but this was a huge game. I think Georgia plays Virginia this year. Well, this was a huge game. They put the dude on the sideline and forget about him. They go back to playing the game, and they eventually have to take him by horse and buggy to Atlanta to the hospital where he dies the next day. So here's another fatality. This one's in 1897. I mean, this is eight years before they had the 18 fatalities in one year. And so the governor of Georgia was ready to put forth a bill to ban football, to just do away with it altogether, until someone petitions the state assembly in Georgia. I have to continue to read here. I'm going to tell you who this was after I read the excerpt. Grant me the right to request that this boy's death should not be used to defeat the most cherished object in his life. The governor of Georgia consequently did not sign the bill into law. That was the kid's mother who went and petitioned the state to not ban the game that had killed her son. So someone tried to do something about it. Nevertheless, we move on. Rule changes come in 1905. How does this sound? One of the rule changes that comes in 1905, I'm reading all this for the first time the other night. Mind is blown. I tweeted about it, mind is blown. One of the rule changes, keep in mind no one's wearing a helmet right now or shoulder pads. One of the rule changes banned the practice of punching ball carriers in the face, which was, according to the author, a common practice, total brutality. You're thinking about football as just kind of the still pictures that Colin's showing you right now. This was as close to gladiator hand-to-hand -hand combat as existed in the modern day United States. What they were doing was, I guess, loosely fashioned after what you see these days. This was gladiator combat. You have people dying left and right. So. You invent the forward pass and legalize it after the 1905 season. The 10-yard first down comes about after the 1905 season. They establish what is now known as the modern-day line of scrimmage. And those rule changes go into effect for 1906. Yeah, we fast forward two years to 1908, 33 fatalities in the same year which leads to governing bodies, which leads to sanctions and modern rules, which leads to conferences. It basically, a lot of the model of the sport today, which you view as outdated, it was necessitated over a century ago because of this stuff. But think about that. What we had a few years ago, and I don't want to make light of this at all, we had a young man lose his life as part of a workout at Maryland. Do you remember the impact that had on the sport? Think about the impact it had on the program and then how it reverberated throughout the entire sport. And then think a century plus earlier, it was common. I assume you weren't playing 18 games a season or 33 games a season. You had an average of like two players per week dying. Per week, dying. On top of that, and again, this book is The Tailgater's Guide to SEC Football. It's by uh, Chris Warner. Some of the other stories that he tells here, before he even gets into his tailgating guide, talking about tramp players, calm yourself, we're not talking about recruiting or anything like that. Tramp players, I mean, back then, you're not exactly getting DNA tested before you arrive on campus. You just had ringers who traveled, 
campus to campus, and they were for hire. They were pro athletes. Some guys stayed on campus eight years because there was really no way to know. You grow your facial hair out. You know, you change a little about your appearance here or there. You had guys that would play on three or four teams per season. Basically, it's like men's league softball, only it was college football. It was wild. It was the wild, wild South, I guess. And, and this persisted, of course, everywhere. It wasn't just the South. But this is a fascinating book. I would encourage you to buy this book. I think it's the first book we've ever recommended, The Tailgater's Guide to SEC Football by Chris Warner, if for nothing else than to just read these stories. Those stories are, there are more than just that, but those were the ones that stuck out to me. So let's move it on here. We had a couple of questions that I wanted to get to. One is about recruiting. Uh, you know, we've talked a great deal about the mass exodus of talent from South Florida. And it's a problem. If you're a Miami fan, Florida State fan, if you're a Florida Gator fan, it's a problem. There's been a lot of talent, as there is every year. Our Bud Elliott puts out the Sunshine State scorecard, and that is the percentage of blue-chip athletes, four- and five-star athletes, that stay in-state versus go out-of-state. And that thing's been trending the wrong way pretty precipitously for several years now. It looks like it's about to continue. July 1st, actually on CBS HQ, if you guys remember or are interested, Dallas Turner has scheduled his commitment. This is a 6'4", 235-pound defensive end. He's out of Fort Lauderdale. That's right where our CBS HQ studio is, so it's very convenient. He's a high four-star guy. There are rumblings you know, within our office here. He's got future five-star potential. He's got an entire senior season left to play. So his announcement is set for July 1st. The finalists are Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Michigan. It really looks like it's a Bama-Georgia battle right now. We do the Wilt Fong recruiting whip around once a week. We either release it on Tuesday or Wednesday, and that's where I am joined by Steve Wilt Fong, and it's really good. It's granular. It's in detail. It's very, very raw. There's not a lot of pomp and frills about it, but it is the information you need to know. And Wilt Fong goes through a litany of names and the latest intel he's hearing. It's free. You don't even have to pay for it. And Dallas Turner's a name that we've talked about a couple of times on that Wilt Fong special. And it sounded for a while like this kid was Georgia. And then a couple of weeks ago, things started to shift. And whether you're logging on to BamaOnline.com and you're looking at Tim Watts and Hank South update, or you're over on Dogs247.com and you're looking at Rusty and Jake and Kip with all the latest, those crystal balls started to shift from Georgia to Alabama. That's where things stand. I would heavily lean towards Alabama if you tried to nail me down for a guess here. Luckily, I don't have to turn in crystal ball projections. But these are my favorite kind of recruiting battles. If an, if an Alabama recruit is down to Alabama or Georgia, you got a home state factor there. If a kid from Atlanta is down to Georgia or Alabama, you got a home state factor there. But these are two powerhouse programs duking it out for an out-of-state kid. So it's a true out-of-state battle. These are Because this is really how you gauge recruiting staffs. There's no factor. There's nothing to really overcome. To my knowledge, there's no relationship or a relative status that's in play. I never know for sure. But these are my favorite to watch. And as I mentioned, with that Sunshine State scorecard, unless something radical changes, and it is recruiting, it doesn't even look like one of the Florida schools are going to be in the final three here which I remain in the opinion of being inexplicable. But hats off to Alabama and Georgia for getting it done here if those are indeed the two finalists. Remember 
when we interviewed Nick Saban, I talked to him about a month and a half ago at length, and I wanted him to go into great detail about their current recruiting approach. Now, a month and a half ago, where were we? Well, we were sitting with Alabama in the 40s in the team rankings. They, they hadn't taken anyone. They had hardly taken any verbal commitments. And that was the same time you had Ohio State just knocking it out of the park. And you had Tennessee making a strong push, and still are. Uh, neither of those programs have necessarily fallen off. But when I asked Nick Saban, it was almost like he kind of leaned back and crossed his arms, and it was like, we're doing what we want to do. And he didn't seem phased. It looked like a lot of programs were taking radically different COVID-19 approaches, so to speak. They changed it to where, obviously, you didn't get to get out on the road for the spring evaluation period. They hadn't had the camps that they wanted to have. And that's normally when you get to the highest levels of the sport, these programs are very picky and they want to see you with their own eyes in camp before they extend a committable offer to a lot of kids. Well, hey, you didn't get that, you didn't get that benefit this year, but no one did. So Nick Saban said, we're taking it on a case-by-case, case, but we're doing what we want to do right now. We are doing our due diligence. And subsequently, you listen to people close to the Alabama program, and they were adamant. I've, I've seen Tim Watts over at Bama Online talking about this for a month and a half, just adamant that they are in selection mode. And they have got a lot of guys that they could snap their fingers on and have tomorrow if they wanted to. They are going to make their move and this is me talking now, I believe they are going to finish easily top five in recruiting, if not higher. We're probably being conservative there. If they land Dallas Turner, if they don't, but if they do land Dallas Turner, that's just another step that makes me think back to that interview that we had with him. And all the while, everyone was nervous. I, I remember a lot of Bama fans being nervous and antsy and uneasy that um, all these programs are racking up these commitments and might we have started a little bit too late here? Might we have let them get too big of a lead? Nope. Nope. And even after this one, whether it goes their way or not, there are several other big names that they are heavily involved with. And it looks, as we go further and further into this cycle, looks more and more like the top of the heap probably won't look all that much different than what it normally looks like. Shocking, I know. We'll wrap it up with a question that we had in the inbox. Now, this actually wasn't in the inbox. This was in the podcast review. A reminder, there is a podcast version of this show. And every show we do, this is Late Kick Live. That's the name of the show we're doing right now. Every one of these shows is available in podcast form. The Late Kick with Josh Pate. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. But as a bonus for subscribing to the podcast, we do one show per week that's podcast only. It's called Late Kick Extra. We release it every Wednesday morning, Wednesday midday. Tanya does a great job with that. And so we love the five-star reviews that you give us on the podcast. And I encourage you, if you want to make sure you get your question noticed, because that's all it is, it's a mailbag. It's Q&A. It's 100% you write the show, and I just go along with you. If you want to get your question noticed, submit the question in the form of a written review. This is mainly on Apple Review and Apple Podcasts, and I understand that. A lot of you have emailed me saying, I don't have Apple. So I can't do that. Here's my question. That's fine. But I did get this, and I didn't want to wait until Wednesday. This was good, so I wanted to get to it tonight. This is from Epic847. And he said, where would you rank Jimbo Fisher against other coaches in the SEC? I feel like when he first came in, he was considered the best behind Saban and Smart. But now I feel he's passed, or been passed, by Mullen and Orgeron. How does he get back to that top level? 
Well, I'm really high still on Jimbo Fisher. I've taken some flack for this over the past few weeks, talking to some of my buddies in group text, but it's about trying to see around the corner. Anyone can see right now what the relative struggles of Texas A&M's program have been first two years under Jimbo Fisher, but I'm trying to see around a corner because one of the hallmarks of successful, wise people who have done something for a long time, they don't just keep sticking with things that don't work. So if you're seeing something that doesn't work and you're right about it, Jimbo Fisher has long since seen the same thing, and I don't think he's sticking with stuff that doesn't work. It's not above this guy, what I'm trying to tell you, it's not above this guy to tweak something about his program or to change something about the way they go about doing things. In fact, I have reason to believe that that is happening and will happen. How much is needed is the question. The offense has to significantly improve. Everyone can see those results and what you're not getting in those results. You know, I mentioned Bud earlier. Bud, again, did another feature, I think it was like a few weeks ago. We read it on the show. And it was about a pretty alarming stat trend with AM. As meager as their offensive output was last year, when you looked at winning time versus desperation time, in other words, snaps where the game was truly in the balance versus snaps towards the end where team had a two-possession-plus lead on you, and they're playing some form of preventative defense, not necessarily full-blown prevent, that's when A&M racked up a majority of their offensive output. So, I mean, that's doubly troubling. However, now we look at the cry against Fisher, and the cry always starts with this. Our play calling's got to get better. Oh, he's not a good play caller. Are you? Yes, he is. Jimbo Fisher's a great play caller. Jimbo Fisher knows exactly what he's doing. What you need to question is, have they developed well enough? Player development and play calling, two totally different things. Have they developed well enough? I've never thought that highly of Kellen Mond. I think he's a good athlete. As a quarterback, and I'm talking about a quarterback that you're trying to saddle and ride to an SEC Western Division Championship, I've never thought he has that ceiling. I think he's a really good player. Now, if I were Kellen Mond and I were sitting right here, I probably wouldn't be sitting here wasting my time, but if I were here and Kellen Mom was right behind this camera, the first thing he would say to me, if he were being honest, was, do you see the offensive line I was having to play behind last year? And that's part two. When we're looking at Jimbo Fisher, we gotta take everything into consideration. Hey, maybe, maybe there's no problem with him calling plays. Maybe he's got a quarterback that's adequate enough. Maybe they haven't had the person on the offensive line. Maybe they've had inconsistency at receiver. All this ultimately falls on the head coach. I get that. What I'm saying is I think it's safe to say he's got the best roster he's had this year so far. And so year three, like I don't know that there's nearly as much that has to change about him as a lot of other people. But having said that, now, there could be a million reasons. You may call them excuses. I may call them reasons for their results. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have coached the game for 40 years. You don't have to understand the intricacies to understand whether the results are good enough or not. Like I've never given birth, for example. I've never, I've never delivered a child before. I've never been a doctor. But I know an ugly baby if I see it. And you know an ugly baby if you see it. You don't have to understand everything about it to know. And you don't have to understand everything about offense football to know uh, Texas A&M competes against this team and this team and this team. And they're doing this and AM's doing that, and that is not good enough to overtake this. That's where we are right now. But you asked, where does Jimbo Fisher stack up? If I believed that he was a better head coach than Ed Orgeron two years ago, nothing in my mind has changed. If I believed that two years ago. And the reason that I think that way 
is because my opinion on coaches, the acumen, the caliber of a coach, I always, since I have this book in front of me, if you're listening on the podcast, I'm holding something flat in my hand. If you were to take a drop of water and put it on this book right now, and I turn this book sideways, where would the water go? The water droplet would fall off very quickly. This is like Ian Malcolm in, in Jurassic Park in that back seat. But if I were to take a drop of honey and I put it in that same spot and I turn the book sideways, the honey would start to move south, but it would move a lot slower. That's how I formulate my opinion on coaches. I have an opinion that moves with the speed of honey instead of the speed of water on coaches. It just leads to such nonsensical, knee-jerk type reactions sometimes. So with Jimbo Fisher, I still think he's in the top tier of head coaches in the SEC. And part of that, and this is a hunch that I have, is because I think that he is willing and planning on adapting what hasn't worked for him so far to what he is capable of doing with the athletes he has and his acumen to what will work moving forward. That's our show for tonight. I feel like we just went two hours. How long did we go? 55 minutes. My goodness. Colin's got to get home. He's got to eat supper. All right. We thank you for watching. We will be back here same time Thursday night. Remember, submit your questions for the Late Kick Extra podcast. You know how to do that by now. If you don't already, look at the comment right below this video and you can reply to it. We will be back here Thursday night for Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani. I'm Josh Pate. Have a great week. Stay safe and God bless. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.